Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun, our weekly podcast with stories and information about the weather and climate and how they interact with your everyday life. I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore. It's my pleasure to welcome you into our seventh episode of our winter series of the podcast. And we take a look at various aspects of life and science and weather and climate. And one of the things that we check in frequently on is the sky and astronomy subjects because many of us spend many of the hours outside and at night love to look at the stars and can learn so much about the weather and all kinds of things looking up in the sky. You know, scientifically, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico has been amazing in terms of the things we've learned of it over the last 60 years. And unfortunately, it looks like it may be gone to us in terms of the current version of Arecibo. Something you may not have heard of, I'd like to bring that to your attention in our first Rays of Focus segment. And then we'll check in with AccuWeather's Brian Leda, our meteorologist who curates our AccuWeather astronomy site. There's some things to talk about. Not a lot going on here in the heart of winter in terms of things going on up in the sky, but we'll preview what will be a busier spring and summer and talk about some of the other subjects, including the difference between trying to see things better at night in the winter versus the summer. And then in our final segment, Bob Smurbeck will join me. You know, we've seen... Uh, we talked last week about sudden stratospheric warming, the polar vortex, and all of that, and we've been seeing the results with some of that colder air in waves down into the United States, a real big blast to Europe and the UK. They got snow this past week. We talked to Liz Bentley about that last week, what that would mean. So that's coming up in our final segment. Friends, it's time to talk about everything under the sun. Through my partner, Joel, and over the past 17 years of trips to visit and spend time with his family in his native Puerto Rico, one of the things that I learned early on was how proud Puerto Ricans were of a very important facility in science and astronomy that was housed right there in the island on the western side, the Arecibo Observatory, also known as the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Center, was completed back in 1963, and it sits in a karst or a natural sink on the side of the mountain. It's it's absolutely stunning because of its size and just the beauty of the island and looking down towards the ocean. It's near the town of Arecibo in western Puerto Rico. Well, since its completion in 1963, the facility, which was initially tasked to learn more about the ionosphere, because back in the 1960s, our inability to detect missiles that were coming through the ionosphere was a problem. So, not only did they use the facility for that, the Department of Defense commissioned it and built it, but it also had a dual mission of space exploration. It was one of the most powerful radio and radar telescopes in the world. So as you'll hear in this first segment, the things that we've learned at this facility in the almost 60 years since it was built have been uh, amazing. 
And the island's weather and geological challenges certainly could be thwarted early, but years of decreased funding and soaring maintenance costs and that battering weather, including those hurricanes in 2017, well, things have finally caught up with the facility. And this past December, Arecibo suffered a catastrophic structural failure that certainly leaves the future of the structure in jeopardy. And it's sad for so many reasons, as you'll hear. Um, Daniel Cleary is uh, an amazing author. He is uh, works for and writes for Science, the Journal of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And he has a background in so many things and is an amazing communicator. He's been reporting for Science from Europe since 1993. And he recently uh, wrote a story about this because uh, there's been some updates in the last week about if there is a future for Arecibo. Daniel Cleary joins me on Everything Under the Sun. Daniel, have you been to the observatory? Have you seen it in person ever? Sadly, no. I really would have loved to have seen it while it was uh, in its prime, but too late now. So as I've mentioned up front here, uh, my association with this is is about um, a personal nature because uh, my partner's from Puerto Rico and we've been uh, I've been going down there now pretty constantly as much as possible over the last 15 to 20 years. And and I, as a, a mainland American, um, didn't really know much about this place. Of course, once, uh, you know, you know, you fall in love with Puerto Rico, I think, and just uh, the beauty of the place. And then this amazing scientific situation that's kind of hidden away. It's, it's really, in some ways, if you haven't seen it, hard to explain. So you imagine, I mean, when we think of telescopes, Daniel, we think of those things that people look into and look up. This is a telescope that uses a combination of things. There's a radio telescope that uses radio waves. There's also a radar telescope that uses radar waves. But the fact that you can uh, bounce energy off of uh, other planets from our planet with just a big sinkhole that they fitted a, a huge reflector into it. And then they had this kind of system of um, cables where there was kind of a, in other words, uh, an apparatus that is in the middle that can be moved. You can't move the dish. It's kind of built strategically into what was a karst or a sinkhole there in the mountains, but you can move kind of the eye, in other words, or the, the apparatus in the middle, or at least the way it was, you could move that to put the direction of those radio and radar beams. And, and, and the amazing scientific things that have come from this telescope and the learning that we did, which was you know, you go back, it was really to study um, the higher levels of the atmosphere back uh, when we were trying to track missiles was one of the first things that they were trying to, to study. But th the amazing science that has come out of this facility over the last 50 to 60 years. And the first thing that we're so sad about is with this uh, failure of it, all of that has stopped right now. Yes, that's right. It was a, you know, a tragedy for the scientists who were using it, uh, who were very dependent on it because it had a lot of unique capabilities that many other telescopes didn't have. Uh, for one thing, it's its size, which made it very sensitive. You know, it's like, a, you know, a giant eye looking out into the universe. And because it was so big, it can collect, uh, you know, a large amount of signal, which makes it able to detect things that are very faint and very far away. You know, it was it's going to be a big loss for scientists, certainly. Now, this uh, this deterioration, uh, I got to be honest, I kind of saw it about seven, eight years ago, uh, one of my last visits. You could physically see the deterioration. And then, obviously, uh, Hurricane Maria 
and uh, Maria was the worst, I think, from, right. uh, well, from Puerto Rico's point of view. Absolutely. That was the direct hit. But there was actually a little system that went by north of it that kind of, uh, in other words, it loosened all of that uh, situation up. And then it made, I think, the, the situation for Maria's direct impact to Puerto Rico even worse. Now, that's back to 2017. I mean, this is three, four years ago. But then as the damage from that became to realize and they started trying to piece it together, other things started to fail. And some of the major failures uh, on some of these things was this past fall. And then there was kind of this time frame where we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then in December, a catastrophic failure thing. And now why don't you give us the update? Because I know they just sure. had about uh, in the past week, uh, the National Science Foundation, right, who is the kind of the caretaker and the kind of overall arm of who takes care of this now, had an update in the last week and kind of give us a synopsis of where we are in the thought process of what's going to happen down there. Well, it's uh, it's hard to say at the moment. You know, they're still looking at what went wrong. Uh, you know, this uh, the structure of it is a bit similar to a suspension bridge, so it's got a heavy weight that's held up by cables. And this is the the instrument platform, which was a steel structure which had the detectors that pick up the radio waves, and that was held, you know, high above the dish, which is like a big wok set in set in the hills. Right. And the cables, we, you know, we don't really know what caused them to fail. You know, last uh, August, one failed and they didn't think it was that big a deal. They thought they could replace it. They thought the other cables could still do the job while they repaired it. But then in November, there was a second failure on the same support tower. So that made people very worried. And uh, they considered a lot of um, emergency options to try and repair it using helicopters because they thought it was too dangerous to have someone working on the towers or on the platform because it could collapse at any moment and people could be killed. So they went through all these scenarios and eventually decided there was no safe way to do it. So they decided it would have to be decommissioned, which would probably involve some dynamite blowing some of the cables apart and letting it, letting the platform drop, right. but in a controlled way so that it would damage as little as possible. But, you know, fate took its course course and more cables broke on the 1st of December and the, and the platform just collapsed. So the telescope was destroyed and can't really be fixed, but they still have buildings and laboratories there and they have a hole in the ground, which is still useful because it shields the telescope from radio waves from other things like cell towers and uh, airport radar and things like that. So they have this hole in the ground that could still be used. And so they're considering various options, but one of those is a um, is an entirely new sort of telescope, which would be like a flat disk and with lots and lots of little radio telescope dishes set into the uh, surface of it. And the whole dish would tilt from side to side so that it could look at different parts of the sky, which was one of the great failings of the old Arecibo was that it could only look pretty much straight up, maybe, you know, 10 degrees either way of straight up. But uh, a, this tilting platform idea would allow it to tilt much further and see much more of the sky. And so it'd be a more flexible instrument. So uh, is there a time frame on when that could start? I, I guess the key is how quickly can they get 
what's there that was destroyed by the more recent catastrophic failure in, in December uh, cleaned up, as you said, as safely as possible. I think it was a miracle that there were no physical people hurt when that catastrophic failure happened in December. But as I'm reading, it's funny. It's like it's you know, there were no physical hurt, but there's so much hurt because of this loss. And, yes. and as we mentioned it with the, the 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 community that uses it and then the community that lives around it and works around it. It was a source of pride, as we said, for those in Puerto Rico. There are about 130 people that uh, are employed by the observatory. So, you know, their jobs are secure at the moment. But if nothing new is built, then they will probably be out of work. And there are all sorts of other industries in the on the island that supported it. But as you say, there are also thousands of scientists around the world that no longer have that telescope to use. And so they're going to have to find another one that may not be quite as well suited to the science they want to do. Is, but, is there that? Are there some that are a little more narrow in scope, but it can be used to try to kind of take the place of this till we get to some something that's as good or maybe, you know, Sometimes things get better when we when we go forward and stuff. Yes, that's true. Uh, there are certainly plenty of other radio telescopes, but you know they all have slightly different capabilities. So there might have been some projects that were just perfect for um, for Arecibo, which now are going to be struggling. There was uh, one particular one uh, called it's an experiment called Nanograv, where they are detecting these sort of um, metronome-like pulses of radio waves, which come from dead stars called pulsars, and they're very very regular. They're about the most accurate clock in the universe. And by looking at pulses from lots of different pulsars and trying to detect slight variations, they might be able to pick up a sign of um, gravitational waves, which is a, a prediction of Einstein's theory of relativity, that uh, when there's some cataclysm in the far universe, it creates a ripple in space-time, which mm. hopefully this experiment would be able to pick up. And Arecibo was the best telescope for doing that. And so they will find it much harder to do their work without it. Let's talk a little bit about the science of what this this thing did for us. Uh, you know, I mentioned that initially they were looking at the, the higher levels of the atmosphere to, to look at missiles and to try to track missiles. But then the science evolved. And, and what are some of the other things that uh, we have learned over the last 50, 60 years from Arecibo and uh, and its uh, various things that are uh, housed there. Well, the the telescope can be used in two modes. Uh, it can be used just like um, a normal telescope, where it just sits there and you know radio waves come down. They're bounced off the dish into the receiver, and we see what we see. So that can be used to look at distant stars and galaxies figure out you know how galaxies form and uh, and also it's particularly good at picking up these um, you know dead stars called pulsars which uh, emit in radio waves and these regular pulses and it's great at picking up those so a lot of uh, the breakthroughs in that area of astronomy were made using Arecibo but it can also be used in another mode where it's like a radar system right. so it sends out a pulse of radio waves, it transmits it outwards at a particular target, and the radio waves bounce off that target, and they 
are then picked up again by the same dish. And it can be used to study the upper atmosphere like it was originally designed to do, but it can also be used to track potentially dangerous asteroids that might mm -hmm. be coming too close to Earth. NASA uses it for that. And also to map more distant asteroids and planets. So you, it was the first uh, telescope that could actually map the surface of Venus, which is Venus is completely uh, surrounded by clouds. So right. you can't really see what's on the surface, but Arecibo could see it with its radar. So we could finally see that Venus's surface had volcanoes and uh, lava fields like any other planet. But Previously, we didn't know that. And again, that's just incredible to think uh, that that kind of information can be garnered uh, so far away and just with radio pulses or radars. Now, uh, you know, we mentioned that this was put here because it had a natural sinkhole. It's a karst. So it's because of the geological formations there and a lot of water running under. It was a big sinkhole that was able to be kind of just fitted with this permanent dish that uh, was kind of built on top of the sinkhole. So there was kind of some some physical structures there. And as we said, there's a couple of towers and cables that were kind of directing that kind of uh, aperture in the middle that would move around as much as it could to kind of direct those beams and stuff. You know, the reason it's there is because of the way Puerto Rico is in a lot of ways. But then I think the reasons that we've had problems is because of Puerto Rican weather. I mean, it's not an easy place in terms of weather because it's getting hammered by, you know, wind and rain and storms, some of them big in the in the uh, hurricane season, as we saw with Maria and stuff. But it's just not a hospitable place. And a lot of, uh, I'm sure, deterioration over the years, it was hard to keep up because the thing was so massive, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, just like a bridge, they're very hard to uh, look after because they're such huge structures and parts of them are very inaccessible. Uh, when it was built in the 60s, you know, as we said, it was built by the Pentagon, you know, to uh, study the upper atmosphere for potentially missile defense. But they didn't think it would be used nearly 60 years later as a telescope. So they didn't really design it to be a long-lasting thing. And although it was very solidly built, you know, the weather has taken its toll. You know, it's a moist and damp place, mm. and that's not good for steel. You know, no. steel rusts, and when it rusts, it starts to, um, you know, crack and loses its strength. Uh, and that's what people think may have happened. We don't really know until the uh, engineering investigation is complete, which hopefully will be soon. But uh, that's a definite factor that the weather, the sort of atmosphere there had, um, you know, caused it to corrode. But then there's also the issue of earthquakes and hurricanes, which are, uh, you know, relatively common on Puerto Rico and can't help with that sort of structure. <laughs> Earthquakes actually, have, uh, the number and frequency of them seem to have increased of late. Um, knowing from my family, you know, every, you know, getting texts from them is, oh, we just had another one here. So, yeah, I think uh, that whole area between the, you know, Puerto Rico... <laughs> My my partner said that, you know, sometimes they feel like they had a magic shield over them with some of these hurricanes over the years. And, of course, Maria broke that shield and uh, and was uh, such a catastrophic event. So uh, it's it's an amazing situation. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, it's 
you know, it was nice for the people that work there big on Puerto Rico. And it, I think it was good for Puerto Rico having it there. It inspired a lot of uh, of local people to go into science, become astronomers. You know, I think, I've spoken uh, if, to if you were many in, of them. <laughs> right. If you're in school in Puerto Rico, you had a field trip there, right? At least probably right. once every two or three years. So uh, you don't know how many young Puerto Ricans it, it motivated to, to look at science and space and those kinds of things. Yes. How much do you think um, the, the, you know, because part of the problem with some of this, when you have this catastrophic failures, we're so uh, kind of focused on other things in our world right now, fighting the pandemic and, and other things. So do you think that that's having a situation where it's, it's hard for people to kind of get wrapped around what maybe the plan would be, or is there still so much to clean up? And if you've been there, I can't imagine trying to clean this up because it's just such a, a hard place to get to. It's not easy. I mean, you have to walk up to, to take a look at this thing from the uh, the visitor center and stuff. You have to walk up and drive up these kind of crazy trails and, and roads and stuff. So just the scope of the cleanup is going to take a while. And then probably till we get kind of a, a thought process about how we might take this and and take that space, which, as you said, is, is a pretty... Uh, amazing spot and has a lot of advantages to try to build something better, not necessarily bigger, but better and more useful. Could be a couple of years till we kind of get that all sorted out in your mind. I, I think the cleanup shouldn't take too long. You know, there are companies that specialize in this sort of work. You know, when you uh, collapse a skyscraper, you know, there's a lot of tidying up to do. And uh, this is a similar sort of situation. You know, it's a matter of, you know, making sure it's not dangerous, getting rid of the debris. And, uh, you know, at least now uh, there is a you know, paved road. When they built Arecibo, there was only was a not, dirt right? track. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and when it was rainy in Puerto Rico, which is quite often, uh, you know, they had a really hard time getting materials up to the site. Uh, so they at least have a decent road now. But the harder thing for building a replacement telescope will be finding the money. Because, right. uh, you know, the National Science Foundation, which is the owner of it, you know, they have to plan things a long way ahead. Uh, it takes a long time to design a telescope and plan it and uh, persuade Congress to provide the money. You know, on a big ticket item like this, it would have to be approved by Congress. And we're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's a whole planning process that has to go through to see whether that's the best uh, use of the money or whether they'd be better off starting from scratch somewhere else. Any any thoughts about private sector getting involved? Because sometimes in these situations, that will, that's what we see is, okay, okay the, the pr public sector isn't necessarily willing to put that in, but the private sector recognizes the potential and will do that. Was that even something that was uh, is on the radar a little bit, or is it really that we're going to continue to look at uh, various science foundations and government agencies to try to pick up the pieces. It's certainly possible. Uh, I know that the um, managers of Arecibo are talking with uh, some private foundations or very wealthy individuals to see whether some of them want to 
take up the battle and at least help to fund it. Um, the Puerto Rico government has pitched in some money, which is going to help towards the cleanup and designing a new telescope. But it's, you know, it's not enough to build one. As mm. I said, to build it, you're going to need hundreds of millions, and that's going to need a very rich person or, uh, you know, a lot of sources of funding. You know, a lot of people have emailed me and said, why don't they have a, um, you know, a Kickstarter campaign and everyone <laughs> pitch in? But, right. you know, you would need a lot of contributions. Really appreciate Daniel's time and information. You can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Dan Cleary, uh, D-A-N-C-L-E-R-Y, D-A-N-C-L-E-R-Y. And if you would like to read his work, you can go to sciencemag.org. That's sciencemag, short for magazine.org, and that's uh, Science, the journal for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Daniel, thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again. When we come back, Brian Lado will join us to talk about the astronomy as it uh, stands right now, what we are seeing in the sky and what we have to look forward to and some other things as well. That's coming up after this. You're listening to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Listen to Weather Insider every weekday for a discussion on trending weather news with me, Bernie Reno, and Evan Myers. You'll get detailed insight into major weather events and learn the why behind the weather. Just subscribe to Weather Insider on your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun. I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore. Here at AccuWeather.com, one of the things that we really... Uh, try to keep everybody up to date on is astronomy and sky and stargazing. And Brian Leda is our meteorologist who kind of is one of the people that takes the lead on that, curates our AccuWeather Astronomy Twitter account and um, writes many of our AccuWeather.com stories about astronomy and uh, had a situation that uh, pointed us to this week uh, that we wanted to talk about in terms of whether or not it is better to be a stargazer in the summer or the winter from a comfort standpoint, that might be an easy answer, but uh, maybe not so from a visibility standpoint. Brian Leda joins us on Everything Under the Sun. So, Brian, uh, what uh, got me interested in looking at the, the situation for winter is uh, I saw you guys had posted a, a video in terms of a discussion about which uh, season offers the best night sky. Is it uh, the winter season or the summer season in terms of Looking, I know comfort-wise here in the northern latitudes, we prefer to be out overnight in the summer versus the winter. But I, I'm going to let you answer this, but I've got some thoughts myself about knowing meteorologically what happens at times that sometimes one season may be a little bit better than the others. But talk a little bit about this idea of trying to compare the two seasons in terms of night skies. Well, both the summer and the winter have their pros and cons. Uh, like you said, and the summer is typically a lot warmer than it is in the winter months, but it all comes down to one thing, and that's moisture in the atmosphere. And the wintertime, you don't have a lot of moisture in the atmosphere compared to the humid summer nights. And because of that lack of humidity, if you will, you get the crisper, cleaner views of the night sky during the winter months. And if you step outside during January, February, even March, you'll notice that the stars twinkle more than they do, say, in July and August. And so if you're really looking for a good, clear night of stargazing, no interference from the atmosphere, wintertime's the way to go. 
I, I agree with that. The only problem is that I think we're a little more susceptible to sneaky clouds at times in the winter, just because you can have a, a layer of the atmosphere that is just not in line with everything else in terms of keeping it clear from top to bottom. And, you know, we say that during the days where we're going to have a nice, beautiful, sunny morning and all of a sudden a, a line of uh, clouds move in in the mid-levels of the atmosphere. So that would be my only concern Sometimes I think it's easier to get clear skies longer in the summer versus the winter. I don't know. Is that, uh, I guess, if it's really de- temperature driven, if you've got really, really cold air, it's going to be pretty, pretty clear, right? Yeah. And it depends on your region. If you're around the Great Lakes or in the northeastern U.S., you're going to have cloudier conditions and say, you know, in the southern Rockies or down to southern California, where you can have clear nights fairly frequently in the winter. Uh, but in the summertime, you definitely have better chances at clear your nights for stargazing. You do have to contend with a little bit of that humidity and the haze in the atmosphere, but typically on a night-to-night basis, you're going to have better conditions in the summer than you would into winter. I seem to remember that we're coming off of a couple of meteor shower events here as we started the winter, but uh, here over the next couple of months, as we kind of go through the heart of astronomical winter, we're into the second half now of meteorological winter, and we're we're getting to uh, getting closer to meteorological, or, not, or I should say, to um, solar spring. That's good news, right? Uh, we're starting to see those daylight hours, at least here in the uh, northern hemisphere, uh, come up a little bit. But we're really in kind of a, a quiet period when it comes to astronomical events that will kind of trigger our fancy, right? There's not a lot going on here in the rest of this month of G- uh, January and into February. When's the next thing that really kind of trips your fancy in terms of something you're excited about looking up and seeing? Like you alluded to, there's not too much in terms of big events to look forward to here in January, February, even March. But I would recommend you step outside and take a look at the sky just in the evening into the next couple of weeks here. You see Orion is a really prominent big constellation. Mm. And then below that, you'll see Cirrus, which is known as the dog star. It's actually the brightest star in the northern hemisphere. So even though it's not a quote unquote event, you definitely want to make sure you take time to go outside and see it when you do have clear conditions. Uh, Really looking forward though, we don't have a a big event happening until May. And that's when we have a total lunar eclipse that is going to be visible from the United States. And this is going to be the first total lunar eclipse visible anywhere in the world since 2019. Wow. Unfortunately for the Eastern half of the United States, this is just going to be a partial eclipse because the moon will be setting before that total phase starts. But anywhere in the Rocky Mountains, the Western coast of the United States into Canada, and then all the way out to Eastern Asia and Australia, we'll be able to see the total lunar eclipse, which for sometimes people call it the blood moon because the moon will take on like a rusty orange or a deep red color during the middle of it. So that's kind of the next big event on May 26th. So again, how far west do we need to be to see the actual total eclipse? Uh, again, like you said, it would it's going to set in the east part of the United States before uh, we get to the totality. Anywhere from you know the Dakotas through Texas, you're going to be right on the fringe. Once you get into the Rocky Mountains, you should definitely be able to see the total phase right before the moon sets at daybreak. What about the rest of the summer? Are there anything highlights uh, that you're looking at? I mean, we just had highlight after highlight last summer, it seemed, things going on in the sky. Well, hear me out. This sentence is not going to start the way people want to hear, but okay. 2020 and 2021 are going to have a lot of similarities. Okay. Uh, but from an astronomical standpoint. Uh, All right. Okay. <laughs> in 2020, we had Jupiter and Saturn side by side throughout almost the entire year. And we're going to get an encore of that here in 2021. 
Uh, the big difference, though, is last year when you looked at the two planets, Jupiter was on the right and Saturn was on the left. And this year they're kind of swapping. So Saturn's going to be the one on the right and Jupiter's going to be on the left. Interesting. So if you're thinking about getting a telescope, I'd say just doing it for this summer. They're easy objects to find with a telescope. And they're pretty interesting to look at through magnified telescopes when you're looking through that lens. Now, this is the same two planets that created that Christmas star, right? So that was when they were crossing almost, and now they're going to go onto the opposite sides of each other. Is that how that was working? Exactly. Yeah, they were getting closer and closer. And then when that quote-unquote Christmas star happened on December 21st, I believe it was, right? Uh, the 21st of the 22nd, that's kind of when they started to flip. And when you look for them in the night sky here in 2021, Saturn's going to be on the right side as opposed to where it was last year when it was on the left. Gotcha. Interesting. You know, you mentioned Orion. I think Orion was one of the things that first drew me to the sky because, I mean, those three the belt, you know, the three stars in a row is so easy to pick out uh, as a youngster and stuff. And uh, uh, just uh, so many good memories of, of, of looking up the sky. So we've got that conjunction. Um, we mentioned a, a lunar eclipse that comes in the summer. Is there any are there any solar eclipses to look forward to here in 2021? Yes, but depending where you are in the country, uh, there's technically a solar eclipse uh, it's sometime in june june 10th right at daybreak okay however you need to be in the northeastern united states like kind of northern new england maine vermont new hampshire and it'll only be visible right at daybreak on june 10th interesting uh, so it's a really brief event so if you're in that part of the country or if you have the ability to travel there for just a short amount of time on the morning of june 10th you'll see part of the moon blocking out the sun but it's going to be a far stretch from the total lunar, or sorry, the total solar eclipse that we had back in 2017. Right. When's the next big total solar eclipse for us here in the United States? Everyone right now is focusing on the one that's happening on April 8th, 2024. That's the next total solar eclipse. It's going to be visible from Texas through Maine. Uh, but in 2023, there's what's called an annual lunar eclipse, and that's going to be visible from Oregon to Texas. In that annual lunar eclipse, the moon's not quite big enough to block out all the sun. So what you see is actually kind of like a halo of the sun around the moon. Uh, and sometimes it's called a ring of fire eclipse. And so that's in October of 2023. Uh, but then, like I said, the big one that everyone's focusing on is a total solar eclipse in 2024. Is that the one that goes over Buffalo this time? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of cities in the path. Buffalo, yeah. Erie, Erie uh, I believe right. Indianapolis, Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, and this one, it's actually going to be a lot longer than the eclipse in 2017. That one only lasted for about two minutes. Right. This one in 2024, this is going to be about twice as long. Do you remember when that was happening? And we, you know, here at our office, there were so many people that tried to take off that day and they were going in certain <laughs> places. And I remember they sold out stadiums to watch the eclipse. And a couple of those uh, 15,000 people saw a lot of clouds, I think, in one place in Illinois. And it's just... It's such a it's amazing how we really gear up for those things. And people are already talking about 2023 and 2024. You know, I did that little segment at the beginning about Arecibo. And I, I know that you don't necessarily uh, have something that you study, but just when we lose that ability to have the information coming in that we expect, I mean, the folks in science, it, it's it's just gut-wrenching, right? If, if you as a, as a journalist that's looking at science, you must see the people's uh, reaction about losing the ability to have all this kind of great information coming in. So 
Um, I thought that was an interesting story to tell here at the beginning of the episode here today. And uh, certainly as you see things, uh, it's important to, that we keep learning. And by looking up, we can learn so much, right? Yeah. And I think like that telescope, it was a radio telescope and sometimes you don't know what you're going to find. So it's out of commission right now. And there could be a discovery that we're missing because, you know, it's, it's no longer usable. Right. So hopefully we can get something. Yeah. Hopefully we can get something similar to that up and running. Uh, I know China just built a even bigger radio telescope. So they're still gathering some data, but you know, the more telescopes and more things like that, the more scientific instruments, the more we could discover about the universe. Losing that after 57 years, it's kind of a huge hit on the scientific community. Brian, thanks so much for your work. We'll keep up to date. When we get closer to some of these events, we'll check in again. Have a great rest of your winter. You too, Dean. Look forward to talking with Brian again in the future. Just uh, as we were putting this together after the interview with Brian, some things uh, we learned. uh, There's growing controversy with uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX and this uh, launching of all these satellites to give us uh, Internet from space that it's going to affect the uh, viewing of the night sky. Uh, They've been taking some steps, uh, SpaceX, to try to mitigate that, but the astronomers aren't buying it. They say it's not enough. So we'll talk about that. Also learned this week, I read somewhere that we may be getting the first audio ever from another planet, Mars. Uh, one of the rovers there may be giving us some audio here soon on that. So we'll check in with Brian again pretty darn soon. When we come back, we'll check in with our friend Bob Smurbeck about the weather. Cold air keeps fighting with warm air. And storminess has stayed away in big measure from the Great Lakes in the Northeast, but is it making a return? We'll talk more about that and everything else weather-wise for the week ahead on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Whether you're at home getting ready for work, packing the kids' lunch, or commuting, listen to AccuWeather Daily. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get the top trending weather story of the day every day. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun as we continue our winter series, episode number seven, as we uh, look at the uh, weather for this weekend ahead and the week beyond. We are joined by AccuWeather meteorologist and friend of mine, Bob Smurbeck. And Smurby, we've been talking a little bit about um, today, astronomy, space. We had a segment on uh, the um, telescope at Arecibo in Puerto Rico, which uh, has been uh, pretty much lost, catastrophic damage over the last couple of years. And uh, I don't know how much, I, I know Smurby, you're a big gardener. We uh, really enjoy Smurby's hot peppers that he oh, yeah. every <laughs> summer. Uh, but do you spend a lot of time looking at the sky at, at, at night? Uh, are you an outdoors person that way? I know I've been um, finding more enjoyment in that over the last several months, I think, is just kind of keeping an eye on that with uh, so many other things going on in our lives, right? Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I got a great view out, out of my back porch and I can look up and see the Big Dipper most uh, any night. <laughs> it changes with the season. Some nights it's uh, lower and and, uh, and I think in the summer it might get higher. But uh, yeah, that's it's it's a perfect uh, view right off, right off my back porch. The, the lights from uh, State College aren't uh, there yet, you know. To, to right, the, the light pollution is in the there. Yeah, I think meteorologists spend a lot of time looking at the sky because we're always seeing if our forecast of sky cover and that kind of thing is verifying and stuff. And then there's also for us, I think, you know, we can really look and and kind of determine what's really going on in the atmosphere. Looking up at the sky. Speaking of that, what's been going on with the atmosphere, my friend? It's been kind of crazy. Oh yeah, <laughs> with not a lot going on but yet enough to keep us busy. 
there's been a lot of just little impulses that have been going through the flow yeah. from the from the Great Lakes into the Northeast as we've gone over this last week, and it's been keeping us a little busy. No big storms. The big storminess has been out west, but it is looking like something's a brewing. That's a change is coming here as we get into this week, where we start to bring that storm track a little farther north, and we could get as we get into the end of the weekend and early next week, especially some places in the Great Lakes and the Northeast involved that haven't been all that stormy here in the last couple of weeks? Well, we have a kind of a split flow going on right now. There's a there's a energy that gets stuck in Mexico and then comes across the southern branch. And the first wave uh, that brought uh, some beneficial rain to Arizona is still doing it right now. That's going to get kicked to our south. But uh, there's another storm coming into California uh, later tonight and tomorrow. And then as that thing bottoms out into the southwest, that comes out across the plains, and that'll be the weather maker we'll be keeping an eye on for early next week. Uh, looks like a wave of low pressure will, will come across the uh, mid-Mississippi Valley on Monday, and then probably going to pass to our south as we get into Monday night and Tuesday, but there will be enough moisture uh, thrown northward into some cold air that we do have to look out for some uh, some snow, perhaps even some ice, and maybe even some uh, rain uh, closer to the low track. Yes, Murphy. The thing that concerns me looking at this is I, I think the models past two or three days um, have been not really able to handle all the kind of little pieces on the playing field here in terms of different weather makers. And, and it takes a while to, to sort things out. Uh, there's uh, as we go into the weekend, this drops uh, this podcast always drops Friday morning. And so as we look at the weekend, uh, to me, it looks like there's a piece in the Great Lakes that concerns me. It would be more Saturday night into Sunday, which could bring a little bit of a situation up into the Great Lakes, uh, Chicago and then Detroit. Then what happens if that main piece is a little stronger? Does it kind of shunt and kind of weaken the second piece? Or does that first piece never really come in to play? And then the second piece, the bigger storm, which looks like it would start getting into places like Kansas City for the uh, AFC championship game on Saturday evening, could be reflected at least with some rain mm -hmm. there. And then there could be some ice that comes in as you go across to St. Louis and then Sunday and the Monday and then Monday into Tuesday. Now you're bringing some of that rain, ice and then snow in the northern flank up into the northeast. So the question is to me over the weekend, whether that first piece is any of any significance or whether the big piece really holds back and makes some waves here for that uh, early part of next week, especially in the east. Yeah, we do have uh, the, the branches of the jet stream are not going to be lined up. Uh, we do have that northern branch with those pieces of energy coming southeastward through the Great Lakes and into the northeast. And that will be uh, that first uh, weather maker that brings that snow to the upper Midwest. Now, as it comes further to the east, it uh, looks like it's going to weaken. Uh, and then the, the system that moves into uh, the west coast uh, later tomorrow, uh, it looks like that one will, will bottom out somewhere in the southern plains and come east northeastward. It'll kind of go in the wake of uh, the, the uh, Midwest feature will track eastward and weaken. But What's left of it? Is it enough to pull moisture further northwestward or right. will it cut all this moisture off at the pass and, and mm. make it go further south? So that's that's the problem we have right now with these uh, northern and southern branch features not lining up. Uh, they can cut each other off at the pass or, or pull pull moisture extra extra further to the north. So 
it's a complex situation uh, as far as the jet stream is concerned. So if things are going to get a little more active, and then the other thing that I think this, as we get ready for this upcoming week, uh, we're going to see a deepening of that cold behind that system. I think that's going to go through in many areas in the mid-Atlantic and then into the Northeast later Monday and Tuesday, that cold air deepens behind this. So, yep. I mean, a place like New York City probably stays in the mid thirties most of next week. Boston's even colder than that. The Great Lakes, I mean, those folks, you know, they got to 40 today uh, on a Thursday uh, as we're recording this late Thursday. Uh, folks were telling me it felt like 60 in Detroit and Chicago uh, because of the deep cold. But it's coming back and it looks like it's even a little worse at times next week. Yeah, we are going to have a, a, a plunging uh, Arctic air. We do have a cross-polar connection right now from Siberia over into Northwest Territories. So the cold air is coming down. It keeps getting intercepted by all these systems coming across the country. But uh, the, the feature that comes early next week, uh, Monday into Tuesday, there will be a, a, a shot of cold air that comes right so uh, due southward into the northeast uh, for the middle of next week. And then there may be some uh, additional uh, systems coming uh, out of the west southwest for later next week that any system that does come up is going to have cold air in place across the northeast where maybe there's another uh, snow event and again that uh, cold air is uh, part of this whole scenario that we really went in depth on last week which was the sudden stratospheric warm-up that led to the displacement and then even in some places a split of the polar vortex and then that cold air pushes down um they got their surge in in great britain i saw the snow pictures from my friends that live across the pond so they got their surge one of them and they get more i think that's where the core of the coldest air it seems like for us here in the lower 48 smurby it's more sporadic right it pushes right. and then it kind of relaxes but in that, that push of cold and relax, that's when things get a little dicey. Who's going to suffer under a storm under that back and forth? Because that's where we have storms, where that cold and the warm fight. Uh, the the uh, sudden stratospheric warming was enough to uh, push the jet stream further south in, in the United States. But it, it didn't have the brutal cold air like they have over in, uh, in uh, parts of uh, Europe and uh, over in Russia, where the air is, is, is pretty cold. So. Uh, yeah, we're we're we, we're just getting cold enough that, that it can snow, and that's and that's all you need in the winter time. You need to just have it cold enough to snow, and we're going to see probably a, a system do just that as we head into uh, uh, later, uh, or I should say Monday, later Monday into Tuesday right. in the I ninety five quarter. And not just snow. I think with this next one, because there's some warm air trying to push back, there's going to be an icy layer, and that's mm -hmm. going to be the key to me to figure out where that is as you go through Monday into Tuesday. I think uh, there's going to in that second piece that'll be uh, interesting to watch. Well. Uh, Smurby, thank you so much. Uh, I, I know this is a, a slow time for you in the garden. Not much going on there. Uh, did you get any of your pepper plants picked out that you're going to try to to plant yep. here in the spring as we get ready? You get any, anything exotic going on? Well, I try to save the best looking pepper from the garden and then I put it on the windowsill and it dries out and I start shaking it, shaking the seeds inside. And those <laughs> right. Are the ones that I'll be. Uh, those I'll are the ones. Oh. Seeds, probably All right. uh, late, later in February. <laughs> I know we're uh, we're we're waiting the days here. So we're, <laughs> we haven't had a lot of cold in the Northeast here and where our headquarters are, but enough now over the last week or so that we're already tired of it. Smurvy, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, you're welcome, Dean. Have a great day.
Well, one thing Bob would certainly agree with me, I think, is it's important now over the next few days to keep up with the weather. As you're listening to this through the weekend and into the early part of next week, we've got this uh, storm that'll be coming across the country, and it's going to be a swath of snow and ice in the middle of the country up into the northeast that could mean some business here, especially Monday into Tuesday, and then cold air gets reinforced. We'll be back next week with uh, another look at the weather. Don't really have a set agenda yet for next week. We're always open to suggestions, and you can make them by emailing us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. That's accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Thank you to Daniel Cleary, Brian Leda, and Bob Smurbeck. A big thank you to our amazing team across the world, hundreds of them, always working hard, minute by minute, to make sure you're weatherproofing your life with accuweather.com, our app, it's always, uh, every time I look around, it's getting another amazing uh, review and amazing accolades. And also with uh, our great AccuWeather Network and our great partners as well. So we thank them. Thank you. And a big thank you for me to our executive producers, Andrew Robb and Ken Prell. And that's a wrap on our seventh episode of our winter series. Friends, we're making progress through this winter. Just one more weekend to come in the month of January. We'll talk more next week. Episode 8 of our winter series. This is everything under the sun from AccuWeather.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.